Do we need to clap? No. No, no when we're in person. Though. Oh, of course. Shall I clap? We can clap if you want. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Welcome, everyone, to the Unsung Podcast. I am your host, Mark Fraser. I'm joined by my other host, the luxurious Christopher Kiesling. <laughs> there's, there's a possessive in there, eh? My. My, I know, I noticed that. Luxurious. Mm-hmm. And also luxurious. We are collectively luxuriating in the company of Vicky. We are. Again this week. Vicky redacted. <laughs> Alright, boys. <laughs> Just fresh out of the jail after, <laughs> after Christmas. Hey, I'm, I'm on track. I'm on the wagon, so... <laughs> I'm doing well. <laughs> 18 yeah. days dry. Mm-hmm. Yeah, after that third episode. By the way, that does almost oh, match things. up. Yeah. Uh, it, uh, well, I think, think that was like maybe a week or so before, maybe 10 days before. So I did have quite a few drinks over Christmas as well. Um, you know, well, well, you're at rock bottom, just like, you know, <laughs> just go for it. You may ah, as well, yeah. you know what I mean? Um, yeah, I was pretty... I was um, a bit worse for wear at the end of the last episode there. I mean, if we were to have a highlights reel of the year, <laughs> the Cod Love Royal and the Orange Juice <laughs> rendition. Harry Mary, she came from the Barras. Aye, I, I got those lyrics wrong. But it was Harry Mary, but she came from the Gorbals. A, bit, gorbals, oh, die. Yeah, so a lot of people mentioned that. Um, and like on posts and stuff That's like yeah. that. Probably the most messages yeah, people, we've had. I've had people texting me about it as well. Yeah. Uh, uh, <laughs> we actually we actually got an Instagram message from somebody. Did you? Uh, with a, a version of Cod Liver Oil that this guy wanted to share with you called Philip. So I'll send you that later on. Right, okay. Was that the Mary Wallopers one? Um let's find out. I'm gonna click on this one. The right Irish now. band. Chris told me about that and I went to listen to it and I, I really enjoyed that actually. It was pretty good. So thanks for that. I'll Philip. For that. That wee bit, Thank you, Philip. Yeah, that wee bit grew arms and legs. Um also, something that grew arms and legs is a section or the question from the Christmas special, which I believe was asked by our man Ferruccio, mm-hmm. which was what is your favourite Scottish slash Glasgow band? Mm-hmm. And there were a lot of names thrown about during that section. And the nice thing is that when this goes out, I mean, uh, depending on when you're listening to this, how early you're catching it, if you're a sub, you're getting this a wee bit earlier. But as of February, we will be implementing the new subscription system, which Mm. is simplified and much, much more interesting. We're going to put out a little soundbite about that. If you haven't heard it already, check that out. It'll kind of explain it in more detail. But many of the names that were featured uh, in the reply to that question are going to also feature as part of the new subscription mm-hmm. service. We've got a lot of people asking us, oh, can you write down some of these names and stuff? Well, yeah, I probably could, except <laughs> as it is, I've got very little free time. <laughs> but uh, long story short, we're going to uh, henceforth be using the podcast and the platform it affords us to try and get some of these bands into your homes and into mm-hmm. your ears. Uh, yes. And really spread the love that way. That sounds sinister, all of that. Don't let any of these bands in my home in my ears or spreading anything about the place. That was like the infomercial equivalent of uh, I drove all night by Roy Orbison. I crept in your room to make love to you. (laughs) (laughs) It's meant to be nice, but actually it's horrifying. I know. Yeah. Well, anyway, if you can if you can stomach the thought of us sneaking things into your house and spreading love, then that's what's going to be happening to subs to the podcast uh, going forward. Try and listen to that little 
audio infomercial that Mark and I are going to put together uh, and that will hopefully whet your appetite. That's pretty gross as well, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. With whet. An H, with an added H. Extra, <laughs> two extra H's. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. You had two extra H's yeah, in it's there. It's like <laughs> Dave, Dave Weaver and he's... Yeah. What is it? Weezer? They always <laughs> fucking calls that. Weezer. Weezer. <laughs> Jesus. Uh, speaking, of, speaking of subs, um, we put out a little... A little suggestion on our uh, unsung all access all areas party group. <laughs> on one of the many perks. Yeah, one of the many podcast. perks. And for suggestions for the next and we got fucking forty. So thank you to Corey, Kenny, Kat, Davy, Chris, Sonhira, Craig. Greg, everybody, you're all fucking lovely. If you have suggestions for the Nexus, feel free to chuck them in. Uh, just email them to us, send it via Carrier Pigeon. Twitter, Instagram. We'll put up a public yeah. post as well, um, so you can respond. The proletariat can respond, mm. but uh, we bourgeoisie behind the scenes, uh, we've already got quite a lot of names. That's great. I'll mm. get scribbling them down and into the tub. Indeed, indeed. Uh, Mark, we're going to do a show this week. We're doing a show this week, yeah. And is this a record that you chose? Yeah, I haven't picked a record for a while, actually. It does feel like forever. Um, so this week, I decided to pick a record that I think is very good, called uh, "For Your Own Special Sweetheart" by. Jawbox. You're a pretty cool band. <laughs> pretty, <laughs> pretty cool, cool band. <laughs> if you mix about the letters in the name, it also spells Bojos. Bojos, I mean. Quite nice. <laughs> that's the, the Scottish cover band. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so you know Jawbox, Chris, don't you? I know Jawbox really well, yeah. Mm. I was really pleased with this, which is probably, I mean, it's. Uh, Maybe the first one you've chosen that I've like. <laughs> been... No, I'm only. That's I'm, not. I mean, I'm winding very up. Few. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, <laughs> when you when you suggested that, I was pleasantly surprised and you know comfortable. Not in the sense that I know a bit about them, but it also gives you the opportunity to learn a wee bit more about to, to read in depth about a band that you've only kind of known superficially. Yeah. So yeah, and it was a week of enjoyable listening. Mm-hmm. Um, they're a band that I have to say though. I maybe left them behind me a wee bit, you know, mm-hmm. I, I really enjoyed them in my early 20s, which is a fucking long time <laughs> ago, and um, I only listened to them very, very sparingly, mm-hmm. uh, but going back to them, it's aged really well, yeah. I think. I thought it was you that had picked it, actually, that's why I texted you to ask. The only reason that I know about Joe Box is through you, and I think until this week, I knew Savory. and I knew their cover version of Cornflake Girl, mm-hmm. and even though I liked both of those songs... I never really dug any deeper, so mm. it was quite good. I, I quite enjoyed spending some time with that this week. There's, there's a lot of bands on a similar page to Jawbox, but I think without trying to give the yeah. game away, they're, they're for me one of the best mm. by quite a margin. Mm-hmm. You know, they really stand out, even though a lot of people tried to do what they were doing. Mm. They didn't have that um, special formula. Mm-hmm. Uh, will we do a little bit of history in the band for the folks that are not as familiar as as ourselves Yeah definitely Let's let's hit it uh, They were formed Originally in 1989 As a trio um, Jay Robbins Which is a name that's uh, Maybe familiar to some of you And you won't know why But we'll come back to that Jay Robbins Adam Wade uh, And Kim Coletta uh, Jay and Kim Were actually a couple at the time Which prompted Vicky and I To muse on the merits Of a couples and bands mixtape Or mm. a romantic liaison mixtape mm. Within bands And mm. how many bands break up And stuff But anyway mm. Yeah So a trio then uh, Washington DC Washington mm-hmm. DC that Washington DC Very sort of Fertile hardcore scene Yeah Especially at that time Yeah In which Really 
began in the mid oh, early eighties with uh, Black Flag and Discord, and I guess you could argue these are pro- these guys were probably one of the later bands. This band started in the, the late eighties, but they were kind of around the scene individually. Well, for a while this is the that. this is the post hardcore to the hardcore yeah. movement. Mm-hmm. This is the first, or not the first, but one of the first emergencies of post hardcore. In the same way as Fugazi are post hardcore a minor threat, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. um, and they were you know peers, contemporaries. By the way, Jawbox, uh, I didn't know this until this week, uh, is a phrase that I think in their context is used. To dis- it's for TV. Yeah, which is, mm-hmm. is I guess your jaw hanging open watching Aye. the box, but mm. also I think it originally comes from like a phrase for a gutter, a drain, mm. or a gutter or something. Like that. I don't know mm. what the connection is there. Maybe TV. I, I don't know. Uh, they didn't stay as a trio. A guy called Bill Bardot joined on second guitar after 1991, which was really important to the, the future sound of the band. Uh, Adam Wade didn't stay in the band either. And in 1992, he was replaced by a guy called Zach Barocas, um, and that. Also uh, had a huge impact on mm. the sound of the band going mm-hmm. forward. Uh, they disbanded in '97. Uh, we'll, we'll cover all that in a wee bit more detail shortly. Uh, they reunited for a one-off show in 2009, and then in 2019 got back together again. Uh, given that we're living in the age of the, the legacy tour, they go back together again for a 12-date summer tour. Uh, and a guy called Brooks Harlan has since replaced Barbo. Uh, 2021 I think that happened in yeah. like during lockdown probably mm. yeah Bill, uh, uh, Bill Bardo was too busy teaching and just didn't want to commute yeah anymore. he, he just, lived in like Vermont or something like that mm. and it was like a massive commute to be in the band uh, they have five, well four studio albums one kind of big collection a bunch of EPs and splits and stuff um, they also had two early EPs both called Jawbox so their their first ever release was a self-release in 89 called mm-hmm. Jawbox their second ever release was on Slam Deck Records in 1990 also called Jawbox and their final studio album was called Jawbox mm-hmm. so we'll have to disambiguate that mm-hmm. quite a bit during the podcast they're just getting their money's worth out the name I think mm-hmm. yeah. just mm-hmm. really hammering it's that home good name. and yet people still confuse them with Jawbreaker yeah, uh, yeah. The, the fact that I split with them doesn't help matters very much <laughs> <laughs> I think as time as time has went on for me anyway, they are they're becoming even more influential, I think, sonically to a lot of bands now. Like a lot of bands we really like, you know, like Deftones for example, far really heavily influenced by not just Jawbox but Jay Robbins generally and his production style. because um, he became a producer. I mean he produced pretty much or co produced at least all the Jawbox stuff. He became a producer par excellence, mm-hmm. you know, we'll, we'll go through a wee bit of why you may know Jay Robbins in it shortly, but yeah, it, they, I think they all more or less went on to do things of note somewhere or other. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, to, to dig into that, the history, just a, in a little bit more detail, uh, Jay Robbins had originally been in the, the final lineup of an ever-revolving DC hardcore band, a kind of mainstay DC hardcore band called Government Issue. kind of a cult act that ran from 1980 to 89 which is a long time for a hardcore band especially in DC um, as you said Robbins and Coletta were a couple when the band first got together 
Two references that will be remarkably appropriate. Their first ever show was alongside Shudder, I think, and Fugazi mm-hmm. in September 1989. Mm-hmm. Uh, the first song they ever released was called Bullet Park. Compilation by Maximum Rock and Roll Compilation's name As was the trend in those days For compilations was ridiculous Uh, They don't get paid, they don't get laid But boy do they work hard Mm -hmm. Uh, They have as mentioned The self-titled Self-Release In self-titled EP the following year then in early 1990 they released a single Tools and Chrome and Tools and Chrome came out on what well, it came out as what would be the first release on DeSoto Records. DeSoto Records was a label set up by the band to kind of manage their own affairs. Following that, 1991, um, Grip, the debut album, was released at this time on Discord Records. Which is, I guess, where they sit in a lot of people's heads anyway. Mm-hmm. You know, sonically, geographically, they seem very at home in Discord. And I think their time with Discord, their time as part of that scene, which they very much were a part of, really was uh, integral to the, the formation of a, a sound. Um, 1992, they released a novelty album, also on Discord this time. At that point, though, there was a wee bit of drama. Uh, Adam Wade had, had like, he chose to leave the band basically because uh, Jay Robbins and Kim Coletta had split up. But Kim Coletta and new guitarist Bill Barbeau started dating, mm-hmm. which uh, I mean, I think maybe slightly understandably, uh, Robbins' behaviour was described as being a bit erratic. Um, Wade just was not enjoying the atmosphere. Uh, he quit and he joined the band Shudder, I think. Is J. Robbins the lyricist in the band? I don't know. You know, as a, uh, he's the vocalist, and I would assume he's the lyricist, but I am I'm purely assuming that. Do you, why is there something in the lyrics that you? I just I think it would make sense um, if that's the kind of background of uh, relationships and yeah. I mean, he, they managed to maintain that band for a long time afterwards, and that's. No small feat, I guess, in those sort of circumstances. Mm-hmm. You know, it must have, as much as he maybe was awkward for a while, you know, you couldn't go on indefinitely if the awkwardness was that acute. So mm-hmm. they, they must have gotten over it, mm-hmm. um, really, you know, got a hold of their priorities. Um, Wade, w- once he left, as we said, he was replaced by Zach Barakis. Um, and 
his style of drumming, I can't emphasise this enough, is really important to, to what they went on to do. Yeah, especially in the record we're going to talk about. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, 1993, uh, kind of key moment in the history of alternative music, really, because as part of that great major label feeding frenzy that we've covered in past episodes, Jawbox were snapped up by Atlantic. Uh, we spoke about this quite a bit in the Helmet episode. Uh, the, the band actually gives Unsung Podcast its name. Um, they're a band that pop up now and again. And this, Vicky, I owe you an apology because you said your first impressions of Jawbox were Fagazi and Helmet. Mm-hmm. And I was like, yeah, Fagazi, yeah, but Helmet, I'm not hearing. And, and since then, I've stood completely corrected in that. You oh, can't I'll, unhear it. Uh-huh. it. <laughs> I, I'll fess up to that uh, in due course. Um, during that major label feeding frenzy, in part due to Jawbox's uh, involvement with their own label, DeSoto, uh, the band sort of requested unusual clauses to be to be put into their contract uh, with Atlantic when Atlantic were courting them. Things like retaining rights to uh, vinyl distribution, uh, controlling the budget of their recordings so they weren't getting into masses of debt. Um, and I think to the surprise of a lot of people, probably not least of whom would be the band, Atlantic agreed to those terms. Uh, no small feat, but it also sort of shows you the desperation of that feeding frenzy. Mm-hmm. That the labels were willing to kowtow to some of the the, the requests of the groups who were trying to court because yeah. they were really snapping up everything mm-hmm. uh, at that point. There's a really great article on NPR called The Grunge Gold Rush, which talks about this whole thing, like that whole feeding frenzy at length. It's got a lot of good stuff in Jawbox, but loads of other bands kicking around about then as well. Like, for example, Helmet were offered a million a million dollars to sign to a major label. Atlantic were really wanting to get the next big Nirvana and they thought Jawbox might be that band. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. There's just so much, like, so much, like, amazing stuff in there, which I really can't go into too much depth in <laughs> because the article is fucking huge. But yeah, it interviews loads of people and talks about bands that kind of were really getting quite popular at the time, then broke up after being a major label, which kind of happened to Jawbox as well, I suppose. To an extent, yeah. Um, because they then did their next record, um, which is the self titled one, Jawbox. They were dropped from Atlantic but moved on to a smaller label that Atlantic owned called Tag. Yeah, a subsidiary Mm -hmm. that was set up specifically to kind of cater to alternative stuff because Mm -hmm. when Jawbox signed to Atlantic, there were some raised eyebrows. We spoke about this in Bad Religion as well, that that episode. You know, I'm one of those people that would raise an eyebrow at certain bands signing to major labels and what Mm -hmm. that means for the future of their career and the future of their creative decisions. But it has to be said that Jawbox's unusually lenient contract Mm -hmm does sort of mean that it was slightly different for them. I mean, okay, they were were still part of a huge corporation and, you know, you can have your opinions on that. But in terms of being constrained and manipulated uh, as, you know, their creative control was relatively intact Mm -hmm. uh, and their ability to kind of manage their own affairs and, as I said, not get into masses of debt the way, you know, bands like Dandy Warhol's, you know, their Mm -hmm. first single, the video was half a million dollars, which they're all immediately, you know, having to pay back from future revenues. Jobbox were able to avoid those kind of pit falls yeah. um, thanks to that deal so it, it's not quite the same situation as a lot of the bands that made the leap to the majors faced um, but there was obviously some uh, apprehension 
on the part of their audience and their peers. And so moving them onto tag, I think, was also a way to try and ameliorate that slightly. You know, you move them onto a subsidiary. It's not quite the same as being on Atlantic's main label. It's kind of it's more specialised with the staff on it. Mm. You're in kind of better company in terms of you know your peers on that label. Yeah, I mean they they, they called it Toe Tag Records because they were basically like this is where we're getting sent to die. Yeah, you know, um, it's quite funny. One good thing about the article is that. You know, Arma Ergun, who was like the guy that started Atlantic Records, a really famous kind of like founder. He's got loads and loads, like signed Led Zeppelin and all that. Okay. Um, he actually turned up at a job box in Fugazi show, specifically signed Fugazi. <laughs> and he went into the dressing room and, and Ian McKay was like, we'd had, we'd had conversations and stuff like that and we just weren't available for them we just weren't available and we were too expensive but basically he just meant we weren't available and he was like he knew this and he came in and we were absolutely convinced that he was there to see Jawbox we had no fucking idea who Jawbox were he just wanted to talk to Fugazi he's <laughs> like, it's like, it's like I, I, I mean I kept talking to him because I wanted to hear all of his stories because like the guy's like he's like got a pure legendarium around him you mm-hmm. know what I mean because he's he's, he's signed Led Zeppelin and stuff like that you know and made Atlantic the big re- major it was Um that's just one of a number of really strange stories. Anecdotes like, about the time. Yeah, and another really interesting one that I came across was that um, they were actually, like those people who'd signed metal bands that were afraid to then face the metal bands they'd signed because <laughs> like the, the, the Freedom Frenzy was so huge around these like other kinds of, like these punk and grunge bands and like, weird stories about how they would specifically start looking for bands with like single single word names and all that and just like the, some some of the most bizarre bullshit. And the guy that signed Jawbox had an expense budget of like 40 grand a year just for taking bands out and trying to sign them. You know, just just expenses and stuff like that. There's a few bands that they'd put up in hotel rooms for like weeks at a time, just like letting them party and then signing them for like $150,000 and stuff like that. And John Spencer Blues Explosion was one of the bands signed in that period as well. Loads of little bands were uncovered and loads of bands were also signed, like uh, Stone Temple Pilots and stuff like that. But all bands were like signed and then just, they were never ever going to sell the records that they needed to sell. Yes, yeah, a lot of them were signed as well and, and sort of the way that some major teams sign players and then just bench them. Mm. Yeah. Partly so the rivals don't get them and partly speculatively, just mm. in case they have a breakout hit. Aye, you're you know. just like spraying bullets and seeing what ones hit. Yeah. Yep. Mm. I mean, uh, the signing on fee that the, the Jawbox got was 75 grand. And basically they were like, that was great because it basically meant that we could pay our rent for a couple of months and write off our credit card debt and that was it. Mm-hmm. You know, we could live on that. Whereas they signed somebody like, they signed Daniel Johnson for $500,000 and released one album for him and he managed to live off the royalties for his Atlantic stuff for the rest of his life. You know, it's incre- it's incredible. Like how much how much time that he, these he people... He did have like three polo shirts. I was yeah, going to say, you know, yeah. <laughs> pretty low maintenance. Don't want to be free of hope But it's crazy, like how much is going round, and the, the guy who signed, who was A for Atlantic, was a friend of Jay Robbins, and that's that's how that, I think that's how Fugazi and stuff like Ian McKay were okay with it because this is a guy that knew, and I think one of the things Ian McKay kind of said is like, well, we could see they wanted to go to the next level, and we were never going to hold them back from doing that. Obviously, obviously we wouldn't do anyway but I can see if that's what they want to do then they're more than happy mm-hmm. to go away and do it yeah I, like I said I think they don't quite 
uh, align with most people's stories from that time, that feeding frenzy, because they managed to get such a generous deal. Mm-hmm. And it didn't necessarily impinge on what their music was going to sound like and how they were going to deliver it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and 1984, obviously, they released the album we're covering today for your own special sweetheart. And the single Savory from that, which the song will come back to, um, Saw them invited on things like Late Night with Conan O'Brien mm-hmm. uh, They came over here and did a John Peel session at BBC they, That track got them on rotation on MTV's 120 Minutes Which I, I remember from the time was just totally indispensable like you, all, like you, you watched it constantly um, It also got them a cameo on Beavis and Butthead Yeah, yeah. I read that mm-hmm. um, Savory itself, I mean, we talked about Far and Deftones being influenced by this band. Far and Deftones collaborated on a cover of Savory, mm-hmm. which I actually heard before the original. Um, I didn't really put two and two together. It's an unbelievable song that I think would probably have deserved its own unsung episode. Mm-hmm. I I can't think of a better song from that era, or at least that genre mm-hmm. and that era, that kind of post-hardcore it's scene. It's a masterclass intention and release, you know. It's, mm-hmm. it's really the, good. The combination of sweet and sour and everything, it's just it's phenomenal. Um, through 94, you mentioned Stone Temple Pilots. They ended up touring with them because mm-hmm. they were also in Atlantic. Uh, it's, it's an interesting period if you place it because 94, this album's come out. Cabana died. I see, uh, it came out before Kurt Cobain had died. It was in February this came out. Yeah, and they were touring though beyond that with Stone Temple Pilots and the sort of what was to become the post grunge wasteland. You know, grunge, it was peak grunge really. There was still blood in the system, but you know, the, the, the heart was no longer beating and it was kind of strange in that sense. It was weird to place them against that backdrop. Uh, Jawbox, the, the the self-titled album that came out, kind of reflects that, I think. A wee, a wee bit of a sense of uncertainty um, and not really knowing... I don't just mean the band themselves, I mean the whole scene. People not really knowing what was going to come next, what to do next. The the grunge thing was dying by that point and there were a whole bunch of like little sort of early movements bubbling up. You know, new metal was starting to really surge through, but it was an uncertain time for this kind of stuff. Um, Jobbox was released on the tag label that we spoke about, the subsidiary that was set up. They'd moved there in 95. Um, it didn't sell as well as its precursor, even though it did receive some pretty warm uh, press when it, when it was released. Um, they'd put some plans for a European tour in place for 1997, and that those included bringing in a guy called Peter Moffat, who'd been in a band called Wool. Um, uh, if you've heard of Will before, it's because the Stals, uh, the brothers from Will, one of them went on to join Foo Fighters, and Dave Grohl was a really big fan of Will. Um, but uh, the tour that was set for 97 was scrapped, and Jawbox split up. The only thing that came out really of note after that was my scrapbook of fatal accidents in 1998. See 
which is a collection, uh, I think it was released on DeSoto, that collated a whole load of rare recordings, demos, uh, the Peel sessions, things like that. It's, it's a really interesting listen, actually. I didn't know about it until we were doing the research for this. Um, and after the split, uh, Barbo and Coletta got married. Mm-hmm. It's a nice story. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Robbins and Moffat sort of got married because they went off and formed a band called Burning Airlines. Uh, who released two albums, Mission Control in 1999 and Identica in 2001, before the events of 9-11 saw them bumped off posters, bumped mm-hmm. off shows due to their name and uh, ultimately forced them to split up. Now, one thing I'm going to request here is that we don't talk a lot about Burning Airlines because, spoiler alert, I fucking love Burning Airlines, especially their debut album, and I would happily do a full show about just how fucking good that record is in future, so I don't really want to go too far down that line. Cause oh, I had loads I wanted to say about Burning Airlines as well. <laughs> Did you, Mark? So yeah, I mean, we've mentioned Jay Robbins. Uh, the name uh, is familiar beyond just the context of Jawbox and Burning Airlines because he became a very well-respected producer. He was also in bands uh, Channels, band Office of Future Plans, a band called Roll Kicker Laydown, who I've never heard, and I think he's about to release a solo album as well. Um, he worked with Jonah, didn't he? Did a, did a collaboration with Jonah, did yeah. Mm-hmm. I can quite believe it, yeah. Um, as I say, Burning Airlines I think are terrific um, I'm, I've heard the Office of Future Plans are good But I've not listened to it, if I'm honest But the, the, the untimely end of Burning Airlines, I think, uh, suggests that he probably had some other good ideas in his head at the time. But he's, he's done a hell of a lot of production since then. Mm. Uh, he worked with a lot of the kind of American alternative underground, hardcore punk and emo bands. Uh, he's done stuff like Coliseum, Small Brown Bike. Did the band Ponytail, this really unusual band that we might talk about sometime in the future. Uh, Modern Life is War, Jets to Brazil. Hey Mercedes, uh, he also produced the Scottish band Stapleton. Oh, who, really? Yeah, we've mentioned them in the mm-hmm. show before. And I remember actually, Stapleton were a band that I saw semi regularly, you know, because mm-hmm. you I saw them in Dundee, I think, once yeah, for you. Yeah, you, mm-hmm. couldn't, you couldn't really avoid them at the time. And, and they were they were good. But when I heard they were going to record with Jay Robbins, I was really excited for them because mm-hmm. it was the kind of person that, yeah, they did need to go and work with a producer like that because their, their approach was sometimes a little bit haphazard. It was sometimes a little bit too loose. The vocals weren't the strongest and it needed somebody to bring out something special and I think he did a good job with them. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, really, really good produ- producer. Still going pretty strong, as I understand. Yeah, I mean, we've done Modern Life as well before, although we that record that we did was produced by Kurt Blue, but a couple of, a couple of bands that he's done, like, 
Paint the Black, um, None More Black as well, who share members, hence the name. Um, he's done against me. Promise Ring, they'll probably come up. Small Brown Bike, they'll probably come up on another episode as well. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Uh, there's a few things that jump out to me about Jawbox, and I guess we can just get a wee bit chatty before we have a, a quick look at any of the, the records. But Jawbox sort of really built on the legacy of both bands like Fugazi and Nirvana. Mm-hmm. They're, they're a really nice synthesis of, I think, a lot of the, the good ideas that emerged from that time. Um, they brought hooks to angles and they brought angles to hooks. Mm-hmm. So they, they were never too sweet. They were never too pedestrian. They have a lot of choppiness, some staccato bits, which is where, again, I, I defer to you, Vicky, you were right about the helmet thing. After they toured with Helmet, who, this is that was actually, I didn't mention it, that was their first real sizable tour, was during the Strap It On tour for Helmet. And Helmet were a noisy fucking band then, and you actually hear that, and you especially hear it in moments of the album that we're covering today. Mm-hmm. Um, but they, they, they bring that choppiness, that awkwardness, the bits of noise rock, but they really sweeten it with mm-hmm. almost... When I say Nirvana, I don't even necessarily mean never mind. There's maybe a, a touch of that, but some of the in utero t- style stuff, you know, like like his Sentless Apprentice, Apprentice and, yeah. and Serve the Servants and stuff. Serve the Servants is to me as close as Nirvana maybe get to Jawbox. got that quality to it and sometimes his voice some of the melodic choices he makes are quite reminiscent of Cobain but not in a contrived not not you know we're talking Bush or Silverchair here we're talking like in a way that seems really complimentary like he's taken some really nice lessons from it that post-hardcore didn't have to be pure yelpy throwing yourself about but yeah that, I think that's what I like about it as well even though there are there are yelpy shouty bits in in Jawbox but the singing and the harmonies and the melodies are, are, are really mm-hmm. good. Joyous. Like he sings really well. Yeah. Some of them are mm-hmm. joyous, like really beautiful. You actually said when in midweek when we were just chatting about the episode, you'd mentioned just how good the harmonies were and holy shit, you're totally right. The the harmonising mm-hmm. throughout their career, but especially on the last two albums, is not just really good, but it's really inventive. Mm-hmm. They yeah. go for some diminished harmonies and stuff that are just very, very clever. And not really something that a lot of their peers were doing. Even the bands like Fugazi. I mean, I don't know if I know a Fugazi harmony, really. <laughs> um, and and that's I think that's a really interesting quality that they deserve more credit for. That there were a lot of bands that came after them that seemed to take a lot of their ideas. You know, I think At the Driving owe a lot to to Jawbox. Uh, I think Les Savvy Five probably owe a lot to Jawbox. They, they don't capture this sort of the college rockness of some of their later stuff. You know, I can understand actually you were saying uh, about how Atlantic maybe thought they were a potential candidate for the, the new Nirvana, if you will. And you can hear it all through their career, not even just their later stuff, but all through even the, the early EP. You can hear there's a real musical sensibility. I mean, there's moments in that first EP that they almost sound like a revved up R.E.M. You know, it's just mm. it's it's tuneful. 
It's yeah. loud, but it's tuneful. For me, like grip sounds a lot like the replacements in places. Mm-hmm. You know, um, a lot of them, a lot of melodic choices and stuff, which is something that they never really. After Bill comes out in the band, that clearly changes, like what they not just what they can do, but the sound like dramatically changes. Um, and his, his choice of melody and songs varies quite far away from the replacements, but it's really apparent in the first record. It was quite it was quite taken aback by the change between it was literally a year between those two albums. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, there's a big big progression, mm-hmm. isn't there? Um, they, they also, I mean, they do a lot of things with timings and bar lengths, yeah. which a lot of other bands didn't really try in that category. It sets them apart. You know, some of the playing i mean cornflake girl covers a good example mm-hmm. it's a very odd timings in that song it's really clever the way they've just abbreviated and extended bar lengths mm-hmm. i really admire that about it I think Jay's voice is superb. I love his voice. It's got energy to it. It's a hardcore voice, but it's got a very, it's very sweet when he wants it to be. Mm-hmm. I mean, you hear it in Conflict Girl, which could have been a very hazardous cover to attempt. It's soulful at points. Like it, it's got a yearning quality and it's just so musical. Um, so yeah, between those like timings, the choruses that really pop, the vocal harmonies, his voice, clever arrangements. I mean, he was, they were really setting a standard for the stuff that followed. And yeah, that includes Deftones, that includes Far, it includes At The Drive-In, it includes some slightly more obscure bands or many more obscure bands. But they, they, they really nailed a really nice approach to alternative meeting the mainstream mm-hmm. n- not straying too far into the mainstream in, in the sense that <laughs> not that it's up to Fugazi but in a way that Fugazi could almost approve of they're mm-hmm. like this is still the band that we know yeah. this doesn't sound like a totally different mm-hmm. band now so a lot of people at the time raised the issue of selling out in inverted commas and I, I, I just think in the case of Jawbox I kind of reject that yeah they were on a major label but as we said the contract didn't really involve a lot of compromising their creative control mm-hmm. so I mean that's a great scenario. You've enhanced distribution. I probably wouldn't have heard the job box if it hadn't been for them being on that label. So that's a win for me, you know. And yet mm-hmm. the music they were producing on that label was edgy and interesting enough that it pushed me in directions that probably took me away from major labels, probably took me more towards Discord. I mean, think how many doors Jawbox opened for people that led to Discord, mm-hmm. that led to DeSoto, that led to all these smaller labels. So I really personally reject that I think they were more effective at that as well than Shudder I think that's a band that the album they brought out called Pony I think it's Pony Express record mm. um, that that record is sort of held up as being another example of this but frankly I think Jawbox were just a bit more successful at it yeah um, Jay Robbins says um, we really locked out with Atlantic Records at the time because it was in that moment where labels didn't know what to do with indie bands so they got us they let us do what we were going to do because they didn't know how to shape us, and then they kind of figured that anything would go. It's a very brief moment of grace yeah. that we just happened to land in. Yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. It's the, it's the sweet spot. Absolutely, yeah. Total Goldilocks on there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, well, we do a very, very quick whistle-stop tour of some yeah. of the records. There's, just not, to, there's not many. There's not many. <laughs> we can pick out a few highlights. I mean, I haven't heard and I haven't been able to find their self-released EP. 
a very, very original one, but the, the Jawbox EP, the one that came out in 1990, uh, it's really tuneful, it's really direct, it's, it's chunky, but it's not heavy. As I say, it sounds like a really revved up REM at points to me. a lot of double track vocals in it which is an interesting take on the genre um, not a lot of the peers were doing that um, it's it's good it's surprisingly good actually for a band so early on was, um, I haven't listened to it but was that not in my scrapbook of fatal accidents it may, it may well you mean the very very first one yeah. or this one uh, well one of them is because oh yeah it could yeah, be uh, it, it may well be in amongst that yeah because there's a bunch of songs that are also on the first album that are on that and they're mixed differently and recorded differently so I'd imagine yeah. the probably well see that was a that, that Fatal Accidents compilation I only just came, I didn't know about it mm. only came across it in the course of the research for this so I'm still getting through it because I think it's got about 20 odd tracks on it or yeah something. it's got a bunch of covers as well which is which is another reason why when you think about Conflict Girl they're obviously quite attuned to doing covers so mm. it explains how they could do it right you know um, um, there's a track on that uh, self-titled EP for 1990 called Secret History that I think is particularly noteworthy. Kind of combines a little bit of the down era Jesus Lizard guitar work with a kind of denser, catchier chorus. Mm. Good. Mm-hmm. I think you do still hear the Jesus Lizard in them mm-hmm. later on as well. Yeah, definitely. Uh, the first album that came out proper, 1991, Grip, G-R-I-P-P-E, mm-hmm. has a much brighter production. It's a, it's actually quite roomy and the, the reverb on it is reminiscent of the 80s. I mean, it, it's obviously not far removed from the 80s, but I think there's still some slightly older techniques at play in the production of that album. It's mm. got that kind of quality to it. I think it's very much a solid genre album yeah. um, without having like standout singles or the really innovative writing the later years. Mm. Like It sounds like a good example of a genre, but it doesn't have a hell of a lot of crossover appeal. Um, one thing I will say about it, it still sounds remarkably contemporary, and I think it's a little bit of an indictment on the punk and post-hardcore scene of 2021-22, that this sounds like so many bands now are Mm -hmm. trying to sound. It's, it, it suggests a lack of forward movement in that genre. I mean, this is a great example. And if this was remastered and released as a, an experiment under a, a different name, I, I honestly, I think it would pass the Pepsi challenge. Um, I think people need to fucking try a wee bit harder. But, you know, go back and listen to Grip uh, to hear really, really good punky post-hardcore in its early kind of stages. Yeah, like I said, for me, it's got a bit of a replacements vibe. Freezer Burn, for example, it's kind of college rocky. Kind of catchy, but you can definitely see potential in that song for for them being like a Nirvana-esque crossover kind of band. Bullet Park's on it as well, although I prefer the version on my scrapbook of Fatal Accidents because it's a lot more punchy. Like Mm -hmm. I think the thing that this album lacks is it's not really got a lot of low end, um, especially when you put Novelty on right afterwards. Yeah. 
Constellation Prize is pretty cool. Tools and Chrome, which was a single before this mm-hmm. came out, is also a cracking song. And yeah, that was a, I think there was a Tools and Chrome 7-inch that came out with a few other tracks mm-hmm. in it. Yeah. Uh, Novelty, which you mentioned, came out in 1992. I mean, it's a pretty prolific period. You got the first EP 89, second EP 90, Grip 91, Novelty 92. Scene has been a big step forward, I think, in terms of writing, but also just in terms of identity. There's a confidence about it that pushes out more in some interesting directions. Mm-hmm. Uh, the track Cut Off has some these really chunky, clever verses. Mm-hmm. got an incessant vocal that goes over the big gaps in the guitar lines and it kind of nods I think to the future creative potential of them that would that would come the production written the same thing actually yeah. I think it's about helmet in places as well it so. is yeah and so this is where I started to be like ah oh, shit Vicky was fucking right <laughs> I hate it when Vicky's right <laughs> <laughs> but um, the production I think on this Again, I don't think the music is necessarily very heavy, but the production on this one adds weight. Like mm, the absolutely. production does, there's a, a roominess, and you know every collision with the strings has a nice little decay. It, it, it sounds satisfyingly weighty. Mm-hmm. Um, it incorporates, I think, the tuneful fuzziness of like Husker Du. Uh, you know, we've spoken mm-hmm. about them on a previous show, but then it has like the harder chops of helmet, as you say. And yeah, I think even though it's still relatively niche, I think it's, it's a really pretty strong album. Yeah, I think it's a lot more muscular. You know, the band sound more like a band on it, I guess. I like Dreamless, it's kind of sinister and it's got a kind of back and forth call and response vocal. Um, but did you know that Static was the the Atlantic actually asked them to record Static for for your own special sweetheart, and they said no because they thought that was going to be the first thing. They thought it was going to be the big single because it's got a really good riff. It's got a really nice alt rock riff. Um, I just. Absolutely couldn't ignore whenever I hear it. I was like, oh, "Fuck, I really like that." But they did ask him to re-record, to re-record it, and they said, "No." Yeah, it's it's a big song for fans of the band. I know that. Mm-hmm. Uh, for your own special sweetheart, ninety four. We spoke about. We'll come back to that. Uh, Jawbox, the self-titled one, and their 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 last studio album, nineteen ninety six. Mark, what are your feelings? Just a bit. Uh, <laughs> I think it's fine. Right, it's fine. It's it's got some good moments on it, but it's it feels like you said it before. It feels like they're starting to question their identity. You know, it's got that. I think it's got that feeling. Yeah, I, th- I think there's no denying that this album makes a bit of a stab for the sort of college radio market. Mm-hmm. Okay, right. it, it definitely tries to sort of. I don't necessarily want to say soft things. It's still full of some interesting. It's straight laced, I would say. Yeah, possibly. It it just has a kind of openness to it, and a, a, it kind of tries to broaden its appeal, mm-hmm. and it, it goes for like a kind of aesthetic quality that was quite yeah uh, American student. Uh, sorry, it's a hard thing to put my, my finger on what, what I would say is, from my personal perspective I think there's an argument for this being their unsung album Wow okay. right? And that immediately puts us really at odds Okay, <laughs> I think it's interesting that For your own special sweetheart Let's take Pitchfork as a metric Pitchfork gave that 9.3 
very, very, very highly regarded album. The 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 review uh, just absolutely lavishes praise upon it when it when it got its re release. They were like, "This is just one of the best examples of this ever made." Um, by some something of contrast, they are very, very positive about Jawbox the self-titled album, but yet the the review I think only affords it a seven point six. Mm-hmm. Yet, as it pains to say, this is a really fucking good record. Looking back in it, it also got a re-release. This is, a, this, is this needed a re-release. This is a, a great album that people should pay more attention to and give and devote more time to, mm-hmm. um, because it wasn't as harsh or as exciting or as immediate. And because this is the argument I'm trying to put forward here, it was arriving in a bit more of a no man's land musically. Mm-hmm. It was arriving in this post grunge wasteland. That I was saying um, it was very it was at odds with the stuff that was appearing around it, like Corn were bringing out Life Is Peachy. You know, um, it was not. Uh, on anything like the same wavelength as that but it was also not on anything like the same wavelength as what grunge became which was like the kind of Alanis Morissette sort of mm-hmm. strummy strummy sixpence none the richer kind of friends <laughs> grunge do you know what I mean <laughs> yeah you know, you're like, that kind of like horrible yeah. Ali McBeal grunge mm, grunge sort of, by numbers mm-hmm. yeah so it, it, it just was oh, kind McBeal. of caught in the middle of nowhere and I think that that shows in the production and in, and in the writing of it I mean, and they also betray some of their college ambitions as well, their college radio ambitions with the inclusion of stuff like Cornflake Girl. Mm. Yet, it doesn't feel like a token cover because it's so fucking well it's done. It's brilliant, it's brilliant. Yeah. I think it's a great cover. Yeah, no, I think it's really good, yeah. I was just, what I was thinking about there was just about some of the other bands that were maybe coming out around about that time. I guess you had Radiohead coming and all the British bands as mm-hmm. well. And yeah, I guess they don't fit really fit in with... With much of that either, uh, Weezer, no, not really. So Weezer mm-hmm. had vanished at this point because Pinkerton and he had his big fucking freak out and just vanished into oblivion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Oasis were back. Yeah, Oasis, Oasis were, were big. big. You had like Green Day were getting into their Nimrod, Insomniac, Insomniac, mm-hmm. Nimrod. You know that kind of era. Like it's mm-hmm. it's a weird time for music, and where the fuck did Jawbox fit in that? Because the label. Clearly has already, you know, the label's already writing up their P45, you know. I sympathise with them. And I think what they managed to turn out against that backdrop is really fucking good. Mm -hmm. I would say, actually, that what I don't think is good is the the fact that they start the album with Mirrorfall, which I think is a really somewhat underwhelming track for them. I think it's quite down the middle and safe. Mm -hmm. It does a lot of what they do, but it doesn't do it in any really exceptional way. What does really work for me, uh, like tracks two, tracks four, like Livid and His Only Trade, track six, Won't Come Off. One second cut from the arc of a swan dive, pulled out tight to the pitch of a taut line, good, gone, down on the Much more interesting, song, yeah. mm. especially the drum patterns. So the the drum stuff that appeared in For Your Own Special Sweetheart continues into this. Mm-hmm. The drumming is terrific, especially for this style of music. There weren't a lot of other bands trying to do this mm-hmm. with, with, with their percussion. Uh, I think Spoiler and Desert Sea, tracks eight and nine respectively, have terrific fucking hooks in them. I think those are right up there with the best tracks by this band, especially Desert Sea. The pacing of that is 
tremendous. Uh, the chorus riff is brilliant, and there's a, a beautiful touch for people that want to get into the nitty gritty, where the first chorus and the second and the third chorus are different in the chord progression. They change the root notes. such a great sort of way to reconcile the, the melody I, I think I think they're fantastic um, tracks 5 and 10 uh, Chinese fork tie and Empire of One Showcase again Zach uh, Barakis's chops, um, and the fourteenth tune in that, which is Absenter, is the one that segues into Cornflake Girl. And before we leave this entirely, I just want to underline again what an ambitious cover that was. Yeah. You know, the the gender divide alone. Somebody as sort of emotionally and sexually charged as Tori Amos, mm-hmm. somebody who had had her history, somebody who sang about the things she did, it's really risky for a guy yeah. to go and try and take that on. That's actually something that I think um, is apparent about Joe Box and the album we're going to talk about. But in general, they do have a kind of sexuality to them. There is a kind of sexiness to like savoury or something mm-hmm. like that. There is yeah, a kind of right. riskiness or something or just yeah, some kind of power which is I think is just part of their shtick. I know Fugazi, you know, when they're on stage and stuff like that, they maybe dance about and um I don't know if Gipachoto means to shake it or if I'm just reading into things <laughs> but <laughs> <laughs> but they didn't really harness that in the same way That scene wasn't about that really Which again is probably what gives it a bit of a broad appeal Because that's what people look for in like pop music and stuff like that as mm. well, isn't it? I don't want to put words in your mouth But Fugazi have a sort of upbeat, up-tempo funkiness Dancey. to them yeah. mm-hmm. Whereas Jawbox have a slower, sexier, S- yeah. soulfulness to them you know, sway mm-hmm. Yeah, and mm-hmm. I, I, I yeah, I totally agree, and, mm-hmm. and Savory is a great example of that. Mm-hmm. And Cornflake Girl, I think as well, has got a bit of that too. Mm-hmm. I mean, maybe we could count these on one hand. How many secret tracks earn their own single release? Yeah, not many at all. Yeah, I mean, a secret track so popular. Lauren Hill did. Uh, yeah, um, she did a cover of Andy Williams. Um, that song, "You're Too Good to Be True." What's that called? You You're know? just too good to be true. Is that what that's called? That song. I, I so. feel like it's not called that. Everybody knows what everyone knows. Everybody you know knows what one I'm talking about, about right? No. She, that, I'm sure that was a secret track on the Miss Education of Lauren Hill, and I'm, I think that might have been released as a single. If not, it got a lot of radio play. I'm singing it in my head, trying to work out what the <laughs> fuck they Oh, pretty baby. I, that, I feel like it's not called You're Just Too Good, though. Is it just called I Love You Baby? I think it maybe is just called Love You Baby, yeah. Right. I, I fucking hate that song. So <laughs> thanks for making me I like that. the um, Frankie Valley and his version of it. Yeah, that's the best one. I <laughs> put cards on the table. I think Deftones have at least a couple of candidates for secret tracks that could have been singles. Mm-hmm. Boys Republic from White Pony yeah. is a fucking absolute ripper of a tune. Um, but anyway, let's not deviate too much. Yeah. So for your own special sweetheart, Mark, floor's yours. Sweet. Okay, let's let's hit it. Mm-hmm. Um, before I start, actually, this this has come out. This came out a really interesting time for me because I've been finding it really difficult to find something I want to listen to for the past couple of months. Just all fucking all music out, right? <laughs> and I suggested this, and I was like, I've not listened to that for a wee while. 
I listened to it. But then it kind of it's kind of got me on this whole uh, DC hardcore post hardcore kick like you and not you the swimming plan all that which I've been really enjoying so. Thanks, Jawbox. <laughs> um, anyway, uh, so starts off at FS sixty six. It's gonna get a really creepy sample at the start. Then the guitars are in really weird shit, kind of discordant stuff. Um, a song kind of reminds me about a Fugazi or Rise of Spring in places um, and it has a really weird opener for your major label debut <laughs> I'll give you that yeah it definitely is mm-hmm. actually I'm going to defer back to Vicky again here I think this is strong helmet vibes to it mm. really strong helmet vibes from the early period um, especially that harsh kind of barked v- uh, verse vocal yeah. which is deliberately mm. unmusical it's like anti-musical mm. and it's really reminiscent of that uh, strap it on period mm. Uh, Savory is obviously the, the big hit It's an instant classic um, Yeah, a song so fucking Head and shoulders above Its contemporaries That it really did deserve Its own episode mm. But uh, A song that combines The dissonance of Jesus Lizard And early 90s noise rock With a direct melody A cabane mm. um, I, I, I think it's a fucking masterpiece yeah. It's got a really nice Guitar motif That goes through it And I was like That really reminds me of something And I, I thought for ages And I landed on It's doing the same for that song As the piano does In All Tomorrow's Parties By the Velvet Underground There's like a, a motif And it's just kind of like This constant wee motif In the background It's just it was it was it was really really good. I think it gives it a lot of tension, mm-hmm. and then it kind of builds up, and then there's this kind of nice kind of release. And I, I, I it's a I great love tune. I love the ending as well. Can you just say the outro of that song is majestic? That mm-hmm. little beautiful glistening decay that they do, fucking it's just it's a terrific terrific bit of music. Mm-hmm. Jay Robbins said that when he wrote this and took it to the the band that he he was like this is a helmet song, <laughs> and it was actually Zach that changed it right up. Um, to make it sound not as helmety, so uh, clearly he's a huge fan of the band, right? <laughs> um, but he he was just like, yes, it's basically a helmet song, and it, I think it's you can imagine hit. it yeah, as it, uh-huh, yeah, but it totally was delivered can. vocally. It's the yeah. vocals that really define it, yeah, because it's the tough and tender thing. It's like the the guitar line is chunky and harsh, mm-hmm. but the vocals are so achingly personal and sweet, and you know, even melancholy. I, I, yeah, I mean, I didn't know that, but that, that makes a lot of sense because if yeah. he was barking those words, then yeah, it could easily be a helmet song. I read an article where it was Jay Robbins talking about how they wrote this song and I suppose this is where the new drummer was really changing th- how they were writing songs in the band because things were becoming much more collaborative and the drums were getting more prominence than they did before and I think it, the mm. drums are fantastic. Oh, terrific guy. And um, he kind of said why he thinks this song has endured is because it wasn't overworked and it was just had a kind of direct 
truth to it. A spontaneity. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Um, and he also said that the lyrics were about a dysfunctional relationship. See, I didn't know that he had been in a relationship with the bassist. Yeah. So it's quite interesting. A bit, a bit of trivia for the album, actually, because you mentioned like uh, it not sounding overworked. They booked seven weeks of recording time for this, and the last two albums were, were done within the space of a week. Wow. And uh, the producer, uh, Ted Nicely, basically made them unlearn like all their like try and like basically erase all of the habits that they had. It was the first this record was the first time they played with a click track and their takes were first takes were fucking shit. They had to basically relearn how to kind of be a band in a lot of ways because it just they just weren't good enough for how precise he wanted them to be. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it comes out sounding quite immaculate, I think, you know, the whole album. But yeah, they were you just said that the recording process like they were like, Oh yes, yeah, so seven weeks, yeah, cool. so when do we bring in this the string section and stuff? It's like, no, it took us a long time to fucking nail it because we had to stop being punk. Unlearn. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. And actually start being players, you know. That's a producer earning his paycheck. Mm-hmm. He had he said that before that somebody would write a song and turn up and be like, Here, learn this part, that part. Do you know it was one person? Yeah. Whereas this was much more everybody collaborating and creating. It's a beautiful synthesis then. Mm-hmm. Uh, track three, breathe. Echoes of 80s hardcore, I think. Yeah, well, one. I mean, again, Vicky, you're totally right, Fugazi. I'm mm-hmm. saying, fig- I've yeah. written Fugazi. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like repeater era. It's that high energy totally. uh-huh. era Fugazi, you know. Mm-hmm. Totally, yeah. But the guitars are a bit, are, are quite interesting as well. They're doing quite, they're, they're oh, yeah. still doing a I lot. I mean, as Fugazi, that's, yeah. that's, I think that's maybe even why, because you've got two guitarists working together, mm-hmm. but doing different things, mm-hmm. you know, really complementing and taking note of what the other's doing, mm-hmm. yet, driving the song along like really propelling it oh the pace is going yeah yeah. I think what I find interesting I think I'd say to you Chris that I think this album is really 90s and I don't necessarily mean that in in a judgmental way like um, I think sometimes in this podcast we talk about things aging music or, or putting it in a place and time and that can be because because it's um, Not aged well. Uh, yes, <laughs> superficial. Yeah, yeah. Mm. but I think this is of its time, and the things that are the giveaways for me about, uh, that make me smile is like all the feedback mm-hmm. and all mm-hmm. of that that you get, all yeah. of those kind of. But in a really nice way, I, it, I love that. In an I album. love that I too. Love that. So so much modern music is played through pods, and so much modern music is played through amp heads, straight into like uh, software. You know, whether it's soft synths, whether it's amp programs and plugins and stuff, and you don't get that. And mm-hmm. in fact, they have to fake the feedback. Mm-hmm. Whereas to hear the real sound of a real instrument in a real room, yeah. it's harder to control. You've got like, you know, you have to get the tone right at the time. You can't just change the preset. Oh, this one's a Marshall JCM head. Let's change it to like, uh, uh, an old orange head mm. you, know, you can't just sw- swing through the presets the sound you get in the room is the sound that you are taking to the album to its conclusion you might be able to EQ it a wee bit but that is the sound that you have chosen that's the sound you're going with and there's a, there's something beautiful about that there's a challenge mm-hmm. to that and so things like hearing feedback in an album are a, are a tip to you the listener 
that the, the musician faced that challenge. The musician had to make a decision. This is the tone I'm going for, and this is the tone we'll have when it comes to mixing. We won't just be able to shuffle through a menu of 10,000 different amp tones, mm. you know, and that is a little bit of a lost art. Mm-hmm. And so feedback is just a beautiful relic of mm-hmm. a more authentic time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, getting yeah. as boomerish yeah. as I possibly yeah, can. Totally. Yeah. <laughs> um, Motorist is the next song, which I think is also a really great song. It's, it's not as meaner, um, I think, as the as a couple of songs that have come before it, but it's got a really good head bopping groove. Mm-hmm. And it's got a really great bridge as well, around 1 minute 45, when the guitars are doing like a jangly thing, kind of bending mm-hmm. and discordant. But the melody is like the vocal melody is quite sweet almost. Yeah, can I just say anybody that listens to the podcast, uh, and I know there's a couple of you that are into Curb Dog, will, <laughs> absol- will absolutely know for a fact that Cormac Battle was ripping the, the fuck off of this song, <laughs> right? Because the vocal line sounds like it could have been one of his. It's such a similar trajectory of notes. Cormac Battle based an entire career on it. <laughs> but yeah, the, the construction of the chorus in particular, the, the two intertwined guitars, I think, is great. Mm hmm. The next is LFMFT. No, LS slash MFT. Man, that's a bad name for a song. That's a bad name. Let's I mean, I, I don't have a lot to say about that one. It's just more Fugazi kind of anti rock. Yeah. I think it's mm-hmm. good. It's good, but it's. That's what it is. Well, I think, I mean, I like the noisy guitars, but the creeping bass, which is kind of buried underneath the backing vocal at the start, and then the drums kind of roll into it. I like the way it kind of rolls along. There's a lot of good compositional choices in here, which which you don't really have so far. The chorus doesn't really lift the song, but kind of drags it back down and even more discord, mm-hmm. which I think is quite cool. Mm-hmm. Uh, cooling Card, the sixth one, I think is is worth mentioning because, you're Vicky, you're talking about things that place things in time, mm-hmm. and this places this in the 90s in the sense of... The bass tone mm-hmm. is so... I mean, it's been obviously been worked. There's some fresh new strings in there. There's some really nice gainy sort of Sansamp-style stuff going on. It's got that trundling... Uh, aggressive, but not overly aggressive. Not like saturated, uh, but, but loads of presence. That uh, I, I love that tone. It's very nostalgic for me. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I mm-hmm. really tend to really enjoy bands that put that much effort into the bass tones. Um, it's really classic kind of hooky alt rock. It's a good pacer for the album. The yeah. speed of it, the way it comes in, and I think it's also another example in, in the record of clever harmonies used sparingly mm-hmm. yeah. they just pop in and out mm-hmm. and and you're talking there about you know the pace of the, the, the album as well it is only like 41 minutes long or something mm-hmm. and the songs you get through them yeah, quite quickly yeah. but I quite like that they just kind of come 
do it, do it, and then it's the next yeah. one. You know. Uh, yeah, this is the best length good. of their albums. I still think. too long. Mm-hmm. Still too long. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But I, they do overstay their welcome in some of their records. But mm-hmm. I think this one is is yeah. pretty well judged. This yeah. was a single as well. This is the second single. It doesn't sound like a single to me. I don't think it's hooky enough necessarily to merit that. But it's it's a strong album mm-hmm. track. Um, Green Glass Seventh. You know, slackerish post hardcore. It's got a kind of drolly, druggy verse mm-hmm. that kind of like smartens yeah. up in the chorus. I reckon it's probably about alcoholism. Mm-hmm. Do you know what this reminds me of a lot? Or I guess what who, who I think got a lot of influence from this? It sounds like early Biffy all mm-hmm. over. I have no doubt whatsoever that Biffy were into this band. Yeah. And I don't see that in any kind of disparaging way, <laughs> even though 95% of things I say about Biffy are disparaging. <laughs> I am sure that they were fans of this band because you know you can you, you definitely can hear it. And mm-hmm. by the way, one of the reasons I say that, and oh, fucking hell, am I going to do this? <laughs> one of the one of the reasons I say it is because Biffy can be reasonably innovative with their their. their Whoa. I know, fucking hell, man. This is this is <laughs> this bit's going to end up in the cutting room floor when I'm editing, right? But he didn't they, even choke when he said that. Uh, <laughs> you feel okay? <laughs> Actually, no. But I'll try and get to the end of the sentence. Like they can be really. Inventive with their with their their bar lengths, things like that, their timings, and I think it's bands like this that lie behind that. Um, You know, Jawbox, as I said, put in place a template uh, whereby a song could be tuneful but could also be inventive. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I think uh, there's a really good an instrumental between the the uh, in the first just before the first chorus, or sorry, in between the two verses. There's like two verses, but there's got the there's no chorus in the middle, so it's like an instrumental, but I guess a bridge, I suppose. If you want to call it, it's uh, literally a yeah. between two. Um, I think there's a really good guitar melody in there, which could easily have been a chorus vocal melody, but they just don't use that. And then when they use that part as a chorus, like after the second verse, they still don't use that melody. They keep that guitar there, but they use a completely different vocal melody, and it goes in a different direction, which I think is quite fun and um, quite good compositional choice as well for me. Uh, I really appreciate the fact that Jawbox wrote track eight. Just for me, um, <laughs> by combining the best bits of Helmet and the Jesus Lizard. I've written the Jesus Lizard. I've written Creeping like the Jesus Lizard. Yeah, I mean, it's that, that kind of da 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 That's uh-huh. That's vintage Helmet. That's like the early, early Helmet stuff. But then the way it goes into that swing. The climbing kind of Yeah, the swinging, thing. climbing yeah. bass line yeah. with the dissonance. It's, it's a great combination for me. Robbins, that first vocal line as well is actually full weirdo Kurt Cobain. Still be the big wine night. So 
seeing the, the kind of Nirvana outtakes when Cobain wasn't crooning when he was doing the really snarly weird obtuse stuff he really sounds like him mm. in that as well so for me man this is just you know it's like shooting fish in a barrel mm. um, I, I I think I love the off kilter chorus I love the snappiness of it yeah. I also think that the line uh, the page wants to stay white is just a great it's a great line mm-hmm. yeah I'm, I'm a big fan of that song I think it's one of the best on it I love how open and jazzy and free the drums are on it no, you were saying it was played to a click, but it doesn't sound. It really doesn't. Yeah. No. Um, and yeah, it's, it's kind of the chorus is heavier, but it's, it's still kind of jazzy and punky at the same time, which is a weird combination. Always a weird combination, but it does really work. Um, Jackpot plus. Jackpot plus. Uh, sorry, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, it's got an exclamation mark. More noisy fagazi energy, nice mm-hmm. guitar interplay. Yep. It's totally decent. I don't think it's a, a a highlight of the album, but it's fine. No problems. I like the snare roll at the end of the intro. I think that's pretty nice. Uh, I, I'm a sucker for a drum, bass, and vocal only there, so this has that. I think it's easy to make it sound naff. So many punk bands still make it sound naff, including my own. <laughs> Next <laughs> mixtape, the, the drum, bass, and vocal only mixtape. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think it's a, a cool song, man. It's got a really noisy middle which kind of made me smile because I, I just imagine this would be so much fun to play live but let's get serious Chicago Piano that is my kind of fucking minor key tune Cattle Versus, fucking brilliant. This, I think, is quintessential Jawbox. I think mm. it gets all the ingredients in the right ratio. Uh, it's a great balance for them. It's got emo, it's got noise, it's got dissonance, it's got chops, it's got hooks, it's got harmonies. I'm not saying it's their best song, but I think it's a beautiful calling card for mm. the band to, to really illustrate what they could do. Yeah, it's, it's the syncopated nature of it, I think, is fucking cool. Um, I can't believe a major label backed this. Like, <laughs> it's, it's, I mean, it's encouraging. Yeah, it's encou- mm-hmm. back then it was encouraging. I yeah, yeah it's, it wouldn't fly now. No. Um, the section around about one minute is really good. You know, the, the bass and drums are kind of locked in this deep groove and the guitars are just off doing their own things. They just bend the song structure entirely and just do what the fuck they want, and it's really cool. Uh, real, if I had to cut a song, it would probably be real. I think it's fine. Again, I'm not in any way slighting it. It's okay, that's a job, but I don't think it's a job that anything else couldn't have done. Um, it's cool It's got some classy harmonies in it But I it's, don't um, spend a lot of time in it Jay Robbins' favourite song on the record And he wanted it to be the first single <laughs> <laughs> But the label went not savoury And they acquiesced The label was right Acquiesced Yes yeah. uh. Um It's kind of moody. I like it. What the fuck does that mean? I don't know. Utrell. 
Is it like U Train, but like the sign was damaged or something? I don't really know. Vintage nineties noise rock mm. trundler, uh, albeit with a, a gentler vocal. Bass tone um, is awesome in this song. It's great. Well, that's that beautiful nineties noise rock thing. Mm-hmm. I, I, I must say though, I think this sounds like it, it should have been the last track. Like it's got the vibe of a final track. It does. Mm-hmm. You're right. Yeah. But they walks is a good closer. That's a good song. Yeah. It's aye, quite aye, playful as well. Aye. Uh, Jazzy. I think it's kind of you know Whitney Walks really reminds me a little bit more of that Midwest emo sound. Yeah. Aye. Uh, it's the most it's the most like that that they get certainly mm-hmm. in this record. Um, I mean, he went on to produce a lot of that. I mean, including Stapleton, mm-hmm. who you know, albeit the comfy Glasgow, but they, they really reflected a lot of those influences. Cool song. Um, I, I kind of would have preferred Utrow as the final one, though. So I've I got to say, right, as much as I joined the party uh, of Jawbox at Jawbox 96, okay, the, the self-titled one, and I do feel that album's overlooked. Um, it isn't as iconic. It isn't as strewn with like, new ideas, nor as consistent as this. And, and so I, I think despite uh, For Your Own Special Sweetheart later acquiring cult status that certainly overshadows their other work, that's probably merited, and I think the paltry sales of the album in a kind of you know in, a, in, a, in an objective context, mm-hmm. the fact that your own special for your own special sweetheart sold what fifty thousand records, yeah. But at the time though, that's pathetic for an yes. album of this of this quality. So yes, I, I guess do, you're number one now in the, in the record charts. <laughs> yeah, <it> does, man. <laughs> um, I mean, I do want to fight the corner of the job box. I think it's it's a bit. Uh, maligned but the sheer quality of this record is overwhelming and mm-hmm. it didn't sell anything like what it deserved to especially at a time when alternative music was really shifting units mm-hmm. so yeah Mark you, you win don't gloat thanks man yes <laughs> I agree I concur I really enjoyed really enjoyed it and I think it I think it fits the brief quite well so mm-hmm. yeah I think it's just the band the band the yeah they're, they're quite forgotten yeah if, you, if you're on the inside of like post hardcore everybody will be like oh this band's really obvious but you've got to remember folks that a lot of people aren't mm-hmm. a lot of people have no fucking conception of who this band is mm-hmm. people that go into you know clubs and dance to the breeders and the pixies and they'll dance to these alternative bands that made it to mm-hmm. that platform They should be dancing to this as well mm-hmm. Savory is as good a song As the Pixies ever released And I'm fucking I'll, I'll go to my grave <laughs> with that It is as good a song As the Pixies ever released And I love the Pixies But it is as good as anything they did And yet The number of people That know what the fuck it is Is, is a fraction A tiny fraction mm-hmm. They seem to be ha- they, seem, I mean, they don't seem to be Annoyed by that fact either You know They've all carved out careers For themselves Doing nice things Yeah You know Kevin runs these sort of records now Which is pretty much Just distribution for Jawbox stuff (laughs) And she's a teacher And librarian Um, And yeah And Jay Robbins Is just Jay Robbins In a bit Just doing Jay Robbins shit (laughs) See the um, The producer Of this album Ted Nicely 
Ted Nicely, he produced that Gatchian album. Yeah, he's st- yeah. He, I didn't know that. Yeah, he did. I Gatchian, I think probably largely inspired by this and a couple of records uh-huh. like it went for him. Yeah, uh-huh. they were big fans of this. And Ted Nicely did a lot of really good. He did Girls, Girls Against, Against Boys. Boys. Amazing. Yeah, they mm-hmm. were huge fans of them as well. So, well, thanks for agreeing with me. That's very rare when it comes to a record that I've picked. Uh, then I get fucking used to it. Yeah, <laughs> it's not going to happen. <laughs> So, uh, should we do a Nexus? We shall do a Nexus. A complicated series of connections between different things. Do you want to explain what the Nexus is again, Chris? The Nexus is a process by <laughs> which uh, listeners to the show choose a name. And it can be anybody. It can be a real person. It can be a character. It could be a concept. It could be a concept. No, it can't be a concept. That's the one thing it can be, right? Like nihilism. Necrotizing fasciitis. Boredom. Right, so no. The, the, the Nexus is where listeners pick an individual. Right, this all grew out of Dave Grohl, the fact he was connected to everybody, right? And then we killed it. Pick an individual, then we find an interesting way, step by step, to join the individual to the artist of that week. Uh, The artist of this week is Jawbox, and the name that was chosen was Man Parish. Man Parish, yes. Now, I didn't know who the fuck that was at the time. Nor did I. (laughs) Was that Davy Bright? Fucking Davy Bright, these fucking mad choices. By the way, I'm just going to say this. Davy, Man Parish was a low-key flex. That was you. <laughs> that was just you fucking telling us that you know who Man Parish is. Well, well done, Davy. I didn't know who it was. Davy Bright. <laughs> Davy Wright. Okay, there you go. You won. Um, so I went and found out who Man Parish is, and he's an interesting cat. He's a guy who produced and remixed loads of interesting music, including Michael Jackson, Gloria Gaynor, uh, Boy George. At one point, um, he was the manager of the village people for quite a long time. <laughs> his manager was David Bowie's manager, mm-hmm. I believe. He mm-hmm. worked with like Kraftwerk. Yep. He's, he's listed as a songwriter, but I don't think that necessarily does him justice. Yeah, he's mm-hmm. done a lot of stuff with hip-hop artists as well. He was kind of instrumental in the, the foundations of hip-hop. Is he a songwriter the same way as Taylor Swift to the songwriter? <laughs> <laughs> Let's uh, discuss. Um <laughs> Hmm. Next week we've got Damon Albarn on the podcast (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Anyway, Mark, on you go Okay, um, so Savory, as we have discussed Was covered by the Deftones Well, it was covered by Far in the Deftones Far in the Deftones, yeah It appears on their B-Sides and Rarities album Which is a great record, as we also discussed About two years ago Mm -hmm. With uh, Jonah himself, the guy who sang it Yeah, Uh, on that album is a cover of, of Only Tonight We Could Sleep by The Cure um, that was actually recorded as part of a 2004 special performance for MTV called MTV Icon. Basically, they get a bunch of bands on to play covers, and then the band themselves would come on and play some songs. So uh, they did covers with uh, they did a cover. Blink 22 did a cover. AFI did a cover. Razorlight mm. did Boys Don't Cry. <laughs> oh, my oh my goodness! Um, and Deftones did the Cure. Did this, this song, and then the Cure came on to play three songs at the end, including the song Ten Fifteen Saturday Night. Ten 
It's actually from the first Cure album called Three Imaginary Boys and it appears in the 1986 classic John Hughes film Pretty in Pink. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a soundtrack, there's a song on that soundtrack called Shellshock by New Order. You've probably heard it. It's a really good song. Have I? You probably have. You all have definitely heard it. I'm going it. to see a New Order tribute band on Saturday night, by the way. You so better so generate it. <laughs> <laughs> um, this song is credited to New Order and John Robey. John Robey originally recorded this song under the name Seabank and the original title was called One More Shot and it's a bit of a like early 80s sort of hip hoppy sort of housey classic um, John Robey actually worked with Man Parish on his 1982 self-titled debut album on his big hit I guess Hip Hop Bebop Don't Stop So, um, Jobbox appeared on John Peel on uh, 15th of May 1994. They did appeal sessions that appeared on one of their compilation yeah, albums. Yeah, on think, that posthumous it? release. Mm. Somebody else that was on John Peel <laughs> was John Cale from the Velvet Underground. Mm. Uh, he he was he did a appeal session in the 70s. Obviously, John Cale is best known for being part of the Velvet Underground no. and their manager was obviously Andy Warhol. Uh, they were the house band at the factory, Andy Warhol's art collective. And it was indeed Andy Warhol who gave Man Parish his nickname Man and <laughs> Man Parish did appear in the magazine interview, which was Andy Warhol's magazine. Very cool. What was his real name? Was Manuel. Manuel. So it's, that's what I read it. Andy Warhol gave him that nickname. Well, it's just like a shortened version of his name. It's like he calling probably, me Vic or something. Andy Warhol just probably passed it halfway through <laughs> shouting at him. Just shouting, man. Man. Um, just, just, a a man. <laughs> just a coincidence that his name's Manuel or something. So, uh, Joe is, uh original drummer, Adam Wade, the guy that left uh, because he just felt a bit awkward. Uh, <laughs> with the warring couples mm-hmm. um, became a member of a group called Sweet 75 you know this? no but the name sounds shit yeah, Sweet not, 75 are, yeah. was the first project after Nirvana for Chris Novoselic Novoselich We still haven't got to the the root of that Mad Republican that he is No he's no No he's no What are you talking about Is he He was was a libertarian for ages I'm pretty sure he backed Donald Trump Uh, Can I say you're wrong though Um, Anyway he was in that band With a woman called Eva Las Vegas Eva Las Vegas is a pure fucking character Uh, Drummer Adam Wade left that band as well um, because mm-hmm. he couldn't work with Eva and the same applied to I think it was a bassist Bobby Laurie um, Eva Las Vegas is a Venezuelan singer who was actually originally spotted busking on the streets of Seattle in the 90s Chris Novoselic's wife had booked Eva Las Vegas for his birthday to cheer him up to perform at the birthday party and he loved her and that was where they teamed up uh, in particular I think he loved this the outrageousness that she had this obviously very very intense persona nice. um, he, he formed Sweet 75 but it managed only one I will add very underwhelming record a couple of decent songs on it man but it was 
for a young Nirvana fan waiting on the first output, you know, Grohl had done Foo Fighters and then this came along. You're like, oh man. Anticlimactic. Yeah, what's going on? <laughs> um, but part of the reason for the, the, the short-lived group was supposedly her uh, being extremely difficult to work with. Despite having a three-album deal on Geffen, I think, and the same manager as Nirvana, she basically ended up busking again soon after, and you kind of have to ask yourself, why is that? Mm. Um, now, I haven't seen it, but there's a documentary that exists called The Life and Times of Eva Las Vegas. Uh, it's pretty fascinating, I'm told. Um, Chris Novoselic refused to appear in it. You know, it's hard to understand. People say the, the filmmaker has a, an uncomfortable approach to Eva and at, at times he's quite sympathetic and at times it seems like he's quite sort of critical and it's it's quite unbalanced. Mm-hmm. But regardless, the assumption is that Chris Novoselic refused to appear because of the extent of his frustration with the behaviour of Eva Las Vegas and the, 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 the failure of Suit 75. Anyway, I might add... Eva Las Vegas was diagnosed with mucoepidermoid carcinoma, which I think is... Skin ca- cancer? No, cancer no. of the salivary glands. Oh my God. Um, uh. And she'd set up a GoFundMe. Now, we tried to go to the GoFundMe and contribute, and the GoFundMe isn't accepting payments. Hope the woman's okay. Mm-hmm. You know, we're mentioning her on the show, and we felt it was only appropriate to go and try and contribute, and we couldn't. I haven't been able to find any more out to that, so we don't want to speak ill of her. Just saying this band failed because apparently she was pretty intense. Um, the documentary about her showed at the Seattle International Film Festival in 2007. Um, <laughs> although a projector bulb apparently melted the film uh, within about 10 minutes into the screening. <laughs> That's kind of brutal. Maybe appropriate, I don't know. Um, Eva was spotted at that event wearing a bright red t-shirt that said Chavez uh, in white letters um, and loudly proclaiming Hugo Chavez's uh, redistribution of wealth in her home country of Venezuela. That did not uh, age well. No. Either, <laughs> just saying. Uh, after his uh, failed initial failed coup attempt in the early 90s, when he was asked what next, Hugo Chavez apparently recommended everybody go away and listen to the music of a guy called Ali Primera. Okay. Viene bajando el obrero Así arrastrando los pasos por el peso del sufrir Mira que mucho sufrir Ali Primera, el cantor del pueblo was raised in rural poverty and I'm going to quote here because it's quite a, it's quite a good wee article was raised in rural poverty in the shadow of Venezuela's largest oil refinery in the Paraguana Peninsula or Paraguana sorry Peninsula Primera was Venezuela's best known Nueva Canción singer-songwriter okay the Nueva Canción movement new song cultural movement emerged in the 1960s inspired by the success of the Cuban revolution and seeking to counter the perceived cultural colonialism of the United States uh, Nueva Cancion composers sought to transform their societies in favour of the marginalised masses they revived local folk music forms which having been widely suppressed during colonial periods carried profound associations of resistance to elite rule, they wrote lyrics that highlighted the everyday lives and struggles of the rural and urban poor um, with his independent label Cigarron, uh, he recorded 13 albums which were widely banned from mainstream media outlets. He remained openly defiant in the face of increasing harassment from state authorities in Venezuela who, he reported, viewed him as a dangerous subversive who encouraged, encouraged nonconformity. Uh, Ali Primera's sudden death in a car accident in February 1985 was, of course, widely rumoured to have been ordered by state officials to silence a troublesome voice, although 
no firm evidence for that has ever emerged. Popularly seen as a martyr who died fighting for the poor and the marginalised, Primera and his songs rapidly passed into the realm of myth. His songs unite Venezuelans in their denunciations of political corruption. Um, a writer called Hazel Marsh, writing for The Conversation, I owe her for a lot of that, uh, added, By urging Venezuelans to listen to Primera's songs, by singing and quoting from these songs and officially honouring Primera's legacy via cultural policy, Hugo Chavez connected his government with the masses on whose behalf Primera was seen to have struggled. So it's quite an interesting political movement where at his kind of nadir, you know, Hugo Chavez, the, the coup has failed, he's on the run, you know, and he says to people, go away and listen to Ali Primera and get your courage back up. Mm-hmm. Find that that motivation, we will go again. And as we all know, they fucking did go mm-hmm. again, you know. Um, in February 2005, on the 20th anniversary of Ali's death, uh, the National Assembly uh, in Venezuela unanimously agreed to declare uh, his mu- musical legacy part of the nation's official cultural heritage and the newly organised Ministry of Culture financed an exhibition of posters, photographs, records and press articles, the production of two documentaries about the life and work of Ali Primera and, crucially, an album of heavy metal covers of nice. his songs because Venezuela <laughs> is all about the metal. Mm. It's all about the mosh. <laughs> they fucking love a mosh in there. Um, on March the 5th, 2013, when the, that piece of shit Nicolas Maduro announced the death of Chavez officially on TV he also continued that trend and suggested that people go away now and listen to Primera's music and prepare for the future. Uh in the context of some of his music, uh, Primera referred to Comandante Amigo. In fact, he's got a track titled Comandante Amigo, and that is an ode to Che Guevara. Mm-hmm. Okay. Che Guevara was also the subject of a rather famous piece of pop art by Mr. Andy Warhol, as well as being sort of relevant to an early film by Andy Warhol called The Life of Juanita Castro. Okay, he has some crazy fucking films, by the way. One of his early films is something like 460 minutes long. Yeah, it's like eight hours long and it's Uh, just someone sleeping. Yeah. Um, That film, Mm -hmm. uh, The Life of Juanita Castro, was followed shortly after by a film called Vinyl. Vinyl uh, was a film where the actors were all reportedly high as fuck on poppers. (laughs) And the the movie (laughs) throughout... Apparently just totally fleeing And the movie itself was loosely based on the book A Clockwork Orange Warhol had also assured the stars That he'd obtained the official rights to an adaptation Which clearly was bollocks Um, So A Clockwork Orange was A huge influence on a a fella Calling himself David Bowie Um, The wardrobe and some of the Sleeve artwork during the Aladdin Sane Period was the result of a collaboration With a chap called Philip Castle Who designed the iconic posters For A Clockwork Orange Um, Also the designer of That famous white inverted Businessman Drug costume Mm -hmm. uh, And the person who did the makeup for the film A woman called Milena Canonero uh, Ended up working with David Bowie on his Vampire movie The Hunger Um, David Bowie's manager was Mr. Tony DeFries, and Tony DeFries also managed Man Parish. Man Parish. It was a long journey. That was. But I had to throw we in some edutainment. Edutainment. Yeah. I'm edutained. The, the music of which artist will be um, recommended by Boris Johnson, do you think, when he's going down? <laughs> Keen. 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 <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. Keen. Can we take that, right? Fucking Barlow's a mad Tory as well. <laughs> Oh, aye, he is a mad Tory. Yeah, you're right. Who is? Gary Barlow. Gary Barlow. Oh, aye, yeah, that's a, that's a decent show, actually. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Speaking of decent shows, what are we doing next week, Chris? Next week, Mark, I am taking us in a whole different direction. 
I, you know, I was sitting thinking earlier on, I don't know if Mark's going to absolutely fucking despise this or if he'll like surprisingly enjoy it. We are going to do the album Factory Floor by the group Factory Floor. Means nothing to me. So. Means nothing Does mean to nothing me to you. So let's see what you make of it, mate. Mm. Uh, and in the dwindling supply of Nexus choices, which, the, is, about, the tub. which is about to be refle- yeah. refreshed, Blot. <laughs> will be Nexus and Factory Floor 2. Echo the Dolphin. <laughs> Big Mags Haney Yes Oh my goodness As chosen by Vicky <laughs> I have waited so long for this I will be tuning in for that You've but got one definite listener next week guys Big Mags Haney Big Mags Haney Well Vicky do you want to come on next week and do it Okay yeah, here we go. There we go. That is enthusiasm for you. <laughs> You're going to. Yeah, ask me when I'm, I'm. I've got a mic in front of my mouth. <laughs> I, I told you, you can't back out because now it's on the tape. Aye. Oh, right. Factory Floor by Factory Floor. And right, I like to find out who they are. Big Mags Haney. Right, okay. Mm-hmm. I, think, right. I think Craig just suggested Big Mags Haney. <laughs> So you can delete that one for your oh, wow. body. Well, had, that's weird because somebody else suggested Echo the Dolphin and he suggested that as well. Mm. Mm. And a whole world of people and characters, people are doubling <laughs> yeah. up already. What the fuck? I know. Mental. So they're obviously attracted to our humour, therefore they all think the same. Broaden if, your if, we were, if we were conspiracy theorists, we would be drawing a line between those things, wouldn't we? We'd be connecting them and filling in the gaps with our own insane reasons. Big Mags Haney is Q. She's well she's <laughs> she's well known for fucking railing against paedophiles. She is, it's, she is. It's, she's uh, got the form. bell of Raploch. Aye. Man, I think we've just cracked it. I'm getting Peppy Sylvia vibes here, by the way. <laughs> I'm sh- pretty sure that uh, Hamish Imlach wrote a song about Big Mags Haney. <laughs> Maybe he is Big Mags Haney. <laughs> Big Mags for the hags. Yeah, well, thanks for putting up with us, folks. We'll see you next week. Bye. Adios. Bye.